Today's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes 9.13 through 10.4. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks in the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's say amen together, church. Very good. Well, go ahead and have a seat, everybody. Thanks for that, Linda. Thanks, worship team. Let's continue in worship, if we could, by taking God's word and studying this, let's just say, interesting passage of Scripture with a lot of commendation for wisdom, like what we would see in Ecclesiastes and elsewhere. But also there's some talk here about the limitations of wisdom and I want to walk you through that. So Ecclesiastes 9, 13 through 10, 4, welcome to those of you who are tuning in downstairs and at home. I welcome you as well to uh, study God's word with us, to open up and follow along as we go. I shared a few weeks ago that when I was a teenager, I was challenged by my youth pastor to read the book of Proverbs. And I did that. And, 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 it seemed like after reading it one time, I was hooked, and I kept coming back to it throughout my teenage years. Whenever I would get bogged down somewhere else, I would come back to Proverbs, and I would read through that book again. And I kept praying, as I worked through Proverbs, I kept praying again and again for wisdom in my life. If you don't pray for wisdom after reading the book of Proverbs, you're not reading the book of Proverbs rightly. And so I prayed. I prayed like Solomon, I prayed for wisdom. And I, looking back on my life and my 20s and my 30s and my teenage years, I feel like the Lord answered that prayer for wisdom in my life. I do. And wouldn't you know it, that ever since I prayed that prayer for wisdom as a teenager, my life has been nothing but smooth sailing ever since. Till age 43. I've never had a bad day. My wife and I have never had an argument in 21 years of marriage. And every dream that I ever dreamed has come true. Praying for wisdom was like wishing upon a star as a kid. 
And as you guys know, when you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come true. Jiminy Cricket said it, so it must be true. No, I've had bad days. And I've dealt with hard things in my life and unfulfilled dreams. And I've had times in my life when I've been more foolish than wise. Does that surprise anybody in this room? (laughs) Easy over there. But even if I demonstrated perfect wisdom throughout my life, wisdom doesn't assure us an easy or painless life. Wisdom has its limitations. And I think that's the point of this message from Ecclesiastes. The title of today's message is Wisdom and Frustration. And what Solomon is going to do is he's going to build a case today for wisdom. He's going to tell you that wisdom's good, church. Y'all should go after wisdom. But he's also going to tell you that I guess caution you that wisdom isn't the end all be all of our existence. Wisdom has limitations in our world. And there are some things in our world that frustrate wisdom and wise people. That's the essence of this message today. So here's what I mean by that. Go ahead and write this down as number one in your notes. I'll give you three points. Fleshing that out. Here's the first. Wisdom is better than might. You heard Linda say that. But it can't sustain memory. It's the first thing that Solomon says here. Wisdom is better than might, but can't sustain memory. Yes, wisdom is good. Yes, wisdom is powerful, but it's not all powerful. Because here's what Solomon says. Here's how Solomon explains it in verse 13. He says, I have seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. Here's a great example of wisdom, a great story, and it's a heartwarming story. It's kind of rare in Ecclesiastes, so enjoy it while you can. Here's a good story, an underdog story. What happens? Look at verse 14. There was a little city, says Solomon, with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. Now, what Solomon describes here is basically a no-win situation. You have a small town, think Arthur, Illinois, think Dalton City. And this great king, this well-known king, this powerful king came to besiege it. And, you know, this, this little city has no chance. This is like the University of Alabama, their football team coming to play Milliken, okay? There's no chance for Milliken. From the perspective of manpower and resources, this city doesn't stand a chance. And by the way, just so you know, just the historical context of this, this was not a rare occurrence in Solomon's day. In the ancient world, it was very commonplace for powerful kings and powerful kingdoms to subdue cities, weaker cities. The Egyptians did this. The Philistines did this. The Assyrians did this. The Babylonians did this later. Even Israel did this when they were top dog. They would go and they would besiege a city and take it over. And what you would do is you would besiege a city until they surrendered to you. And, and you would build siege works around that city to prevent any water or food from getting in so that they would be forced to surrender to you. And once they surrendered to you, you would make them what's called a vassal. They would be a vassal city, and they would have to pay you tribute. They would pay tribute to the conquerors. So that was quite common in Solomon's day. 
So Solomon, and you know, Solomon, he doesn't tell you what historical event this is that he's talking about. So it's probably fictional, but it's not like, you know, out in left field. This is, this is a real thing that happened in Solomon's day, this story that he's describing. Now here's the twist in the story. Here's the unique thing that happens. Look at verse 15. But there was found in this city, this city that was doomed, there was found in the city a poor, wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. I mean, this is the ultimate underdog story. This is David and Goliath. This is Milliken beats Alabama. How does that happen? That's what's going on here. And, and you might ask, well, how did this guy deliver the city, this wise man? I don't know. Solomon doesn't tell us. Did he negotiate with this attacking army? Maybe. Did he find a way to smuggle food and water past those siege works? I don't know. Did he conduct a surprise military attack and, and catch the besieging army unawares? I, I don't know. Solomon doesn't go into detail with that. There, there are famous stories like this in the old world, in the ancient world. There's actually a story about the Greek mathematician Archimedes when he was being besieged by a naval attackers in the city of Syracuse, he devised this thing called an iron hand that would go and strike enemy ships as they came and, and sink them. So this one man with his wisdom, with his ingenuity, with his engineering was able to save the city of Syracuse. Is that the kind of thing that Solomon has in mind here? I, I don't know. There's also a story in the old Testament, maybe a little more primitive, in the book of Judges, in Judges 9, where there's this woman, and she's in the city of Thebes, and this evil judge came to attack her named Abimelech. And she and the rest of the city ran in, inside of the city for refuge. They went actually inside of a city tower for refuge, and Abimelech cut down logs and barricaded the tower to burn down this tower. And as he was Doing this in front of the tower, this woman took a millstone, went to the top of the tower, and dropped it on his head and cracked his skull. And he lay writhing on the ground. And actually, he didn't die. He asked one of his soldiers to run him through because he didn't want the, the embarrassment of telling other people, of other people saying about him that he was killed by a woman. So someone else killed him. And that army left embarrassed and went, went out of the city. And this, this woman, who we don't even know her name, saved the city. Is that what Solomon's talking about here with this story? Probably not. You know, Solomon never specifies what historical event he's referring to. And the, the main point of this anecdote isn't really what's the history behind it. It's, it's not really about the saving of the city. It's about two things. And here's what he's trying, here's the moral that comes out of the story. The first, the first moral has to do with this word poor. Does everybody see that in verse 15? The poor wise man. Solomon was a rich, wise king. And it's interesting that he's focusing on this small city and a poor wise man. He's telling you that you don't, have to be rich to be wise and you sure don't have to be wise to be rich and there's a point here that there's there's a kind of wisdom that trickles down to everybody that's accessible to everybody not just rich wise kings of israel 
There's something else going on here, a second moral, and that shows up at the end of verse 15. Solomon says, there was found in that city a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet, look at the end of verse 15. No one remembered that poor man. Despite this heroic deed, despite this courageous thing, whatever it was, this person, this wise man was promptly forgotten. In other words, people are fickle and fame is fleeting. That's what Solomon's getting at here. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament when he interpreted the dream of the baker and he told the baker, you know, when you get restored, don't forget about me. Tell Pharaoh about me. Sure, I will. He goes to Pharaoh and he promptly forgets Joseph. And the same thing happens with Mordecai after he saves King Xerxes' life. That guy just forgot about him. It wasn't until later that King Xerxes even found out that Mordecai had saved his life. People are like that. Life is like that too. Even life-saving wisdom is soon forgotten. And think about all the significant people in this world that are long forgotten to history. I mean, yeah, we remember Solomon because he was rich and he was wise and he was the king of Israel. We even remember Joseph and Mordecai because they're in the Bible. And we remember the powerful kingdoms of Assyria and the powerful kings, kings like Ashurbanipal and Sennacherib and Tiglath-Pileser who destroyed and besieged the cities of the ancient world. But we don't remember the small contributions of poor, wise people who have done great deeds throughout history. We don't remember them. Their names aren't recorded in history. The moral of this story is that wisdom is a good pursuit. It's good for you to pursue it, Harvest Decatur. But wisdom doesn't ensure riches, and it surely doesn't ensure notoriety. And if you search for wisdom thinking it's going to make you famous, your, your seeking is in vain and you should prepare to be di- disappointed. That's the moral of this story. Wisdom is better than might, says Solomon in verse 16. Wisdom is better than might, yes. But the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Wisdom is better than might, but don't be surprised if you get forgotten and the mighty get remembered. Don't be surprised by that. And let me, let me get practical with you here, Harvest Decatur. I'm going to say, how does this apply to me, Pastor Tony? I love this church. I'll just tell you, I love Harvest Decatur, and I love the people that are here, those of you who are listening in right now at home. I love every one of you. But I'll be honest with you, the New York Times will never, ever write an article about Harvest Decatur. They will never write an article about you and how faithful you've been to your family. If you're waiting for that, keep on waiting. That's not going to happen. If you went to the Washington Post and interviewed their reporters, they probably don't know where Decatur, Illinois is. They probably think Decatur is some city in Georgia, which it is, but, you know, we're the better Decatur. They're not going to remember you. And it's because you're just, you're just not sensational enough to make the papers, to make, make an impact, you might say, even on history. Here's my point. If, if you raise your family wisely, 
If you teach your children the Bible, if you study God's word and live a life that's moral and principled and stay out of debt as best you can and live a convictional biblical life, you will disappear into a world of anonymity. You will disappear into a world of obscurity. Are you okay with that? Nobody does podcasts about the good church that's being faithful to the Lord. They do podcasts about crazy pastors who do crazy things. And everybody loves it. I went to a Gospel Coalition conference not that long ago, and I remember I heard a pastor come forward, and he said, you know, when I was a young pastor, I wanted to be great. I wanted to be the Charles Spurgeon of North America. I wanted to be great. And then he said, after 20 years of ministry, you know what I want? I just want to finish. The bar has gotten a little lower. (laughs) Said, I just want to finish without bringing shame to my Savior. You know, I sympathize with that. Because the New York Times isn't going to write a story about you or about me. Now, if I had a sex change operation, they'd come. If I had some big deconversion story, they'd be, oh, yeah, here's this pastor. He deconverted. Let's get it. Let's get him in the headlines. But faithful people serving the Lord, that's the fast track to anonymity. Wisdom, in many ways, is forgotten unless your name is King Solomon. Are you all okay with that? I want to make sure you're okay with that. And I think what Solomon is saying here, it's not so much that wisdom is worthless. Please don't take that away from this. That would be excessively cynical. Solomon isn't excessively cynical. He's just a little cynical. And, and what he's saying is that wisdom, he's not saying that wisdom is worthless. He's saying it's undervalued in this world. Faithful, good followers of God get forgotten. That's what he's saying. He's saying that wisdom has its limitations. And if you're going to seek wisdom, if you're going to live a wise life, that's good. But don't think that you'll be admired for it because some people don't even care and don't even think much about it. Not everybody values wisdom. Wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Write this down as number two in your notes. Here's the second thing that Solomon tells us. Wisdom is better than warfare, but it can't subdue wickedness. Wisdom is better than warfare, but can't subdue wickedness. Solomon says this in verse 17. He says, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Yes, isn't that true? The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Teddy Roosevelt said, speak softly and don't carry a big stick. Isn't how that went? Maybe I got that wrong. I had this friend once, really soft-spoken wise man, and he got into this little argument with a person who, let's just say, wasn't soft-spoken. And every time he would try to, you know, bring some wisdom, bring some discernment, bring some good into the conversation, this guy would just shout him down, shout him down, shout him down, shout him down. You ever been in a situation like that? 
As if just by volume, that wins the argument, not by truth. And I, I really sympathize with this guy, but, but he was, he just couldn't compete with loud, bombastic shouting. I had another friend when I lived in Chicago, he, he gave me this article. It was this Christian leadership article about um, loud-mouthed blowhards in the Christian community. I don't know why he gave me this article. I was like, uh, what? And I was trying to find it yesterday because it was a really intriguing article. It talked about how it seems like people in the church kind of gravitate to those kinds of personality, the loud people shouting down everybody else. And like I said, I, you know, I, I didn't know if he gave that to me because he thought I was maybe tempted in that direction, or maybe he thought that I was tempted to follow that kind of leader. I don't know, but I took to heart what he gave me. Well, Proverbs 15 verse one says a soft answer turns away wrath, right? Proverbs 12, 18 says there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 16, 24 says, gracious words are like a honeycomb, a honeycomb. Don't you love honey? Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. I can't tell you, listen, Harvest Decatur, I want you to hear me on this. I can't tell you how many times throughout my life I have prayed, Lord, please tame my tongue. Please, Lord. Please use my tongue for good and not evil. Because I know, I know the temptation to be the loudest person in the room and somehow think by that, that wisdom comes from that. That's not always true. And something that Solomon warns us about here is that even the, even the wisest counselor can get shouted down by a loud fool insert your requisite comments about social media right here. You do that. I won't do it for you. Look at verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. Wow. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good says Solomon. This is the ultimate, like six in one hand, half a dozen in the other statement in the Bible. Okay. This is Solomon goes full antithetical parallelism here for you. Y'all remember what that is? Synonymous parallelism. Remember that's when two synonymous ideas are put side by side. Proverbs 1, 8, hear my son, your father's instruction, forsake not your mother's teaching. In other words, both of those things are saying, kids obey your parents. That's synonymous parallelism. When you have antithetic parallelism, you have two statements side by side that are saying opposite but parallel truths. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Are you feeling the antithetic parallelism? Are you now? You need to think like a Hebrew. Come on now. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You feeling it? That's what Solomon does here in verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. In other words, wisdom is good, it's better than weapons of warfare, but think how much one bad person can do with just a few sinful actions. Think about how much evil 
Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin can do with just a few pushes of the button. And they, they seem destined to do that. And are, we're powerless to stop it, seems like. Think about how much turmoil in the church one bad elder or one bad pastor can inflict on a church body. Think about a father, a bad father. Think about how much damage he can do on a family, even if his wife is wise and a God-fearer, even if the kids know that that father is a bad person. The point of what Solomon is saying here is that wisdom is powerful, but it's not all-powerful. Wisdom is imposing, but it's not indefatigable. It can't stop all the foolishness in this world. It's a Genesis 3 world. By the way, speaking of one sinner destroying much good, how many of y'all have heard of a man named Gavrilo Princip? We know, George. Anybody else know that name? <laughs> Thank you, George. Gavrilo Princip was a teenager a Bosnian Serb who pretty much single-handedly started the worst world war in history that is until World War II. He was somebody that got tired of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and what it was doing to his own people, and so he took it upon himself to assassinate Franz Ferdinand, the heir apparent of the Austro-Hungarian throne. He killed him, and he started World War II, killed Millions of people. What's interesting is you look back on history, World War One was horrible and preventable in many ways. What's ironic about that war is that many of the great European powers had allied themselves with other European powers as a sign of allegiance in order to prevent war from breaking out. That's the irony. There were these allegiances that weren't normally allegiances. And so why do you have somebody like England fighting against Germany? We didn't have any beef with Germany, the English didn't have any beef with Germany. It's because they had alliances with Austro-Hungary. And all of a sudden, the whole world broke out in war, and it was devastating. And where was the wisdom to stop all of this? Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Look, Harvest Decatur, wisdom is great. I, I hope all of you are asking the Lord and praying daily for wisdom. I'm praying daily for wisdom. James 1, 5. God, please. But will that prevent you from encountering suffering in this world? Wisdom, will that keep you from pain in this world? Maybe some of it, but not all of it. This is a Genesis 3 world, and you can only limit, you can only limit the effects of sin so much in this world. By the way, let me, when we speak about wisdom, we speak about the law you know, God gave the Israelites the law in the Old Testament, and there were two main purposes for the law. The first purpose of the law was to point out people's sinfulness so that they would look for atonement. And that's why the animal sacrifices were part of the law. Because people saw the law that God gave them. Just look at the Ten Commandments. They're like, I'm a sinner. What am I going to do? I'm going to offer up these sacrifices, and they're going to pay for my sin, and they're going to point forward to the once-for-all-time sacrifice, Jesus Christ, Right? So that's one of the things that the law did. It pointed out your sinfulness. Paul makes that clear in Romans and Galatians. You know another thing that the law did in the Old Testament? It restricted the effects of sin. 
it's better for our society if we don't cheat and lie and steal from one another. It's better in our society if we don't just have sex with random people. It's better if we have monogamous, heterosexual, non-incestuous marriage with one another. That's what the Bible teaches. And so the law helps us to restrain the effects of sin. And even wisdom on top of that, on top of the law, helps us to restrict the impact of sin upon our world so that we live godly, good, wise lives and experience what you might call human flourishing. But just so you know, we still live in a Genesis 3 world and there still are sinful effects that are going to flood all aspects of our world. And you're going to feel the effects of that. Wisdom is better than warfare. It is. But one sinner can destroy much good. One sinner in a family, one sinner in a church, one sinner in a country. Wisdom is better than warfare, but it can't subdue wickedness. God has to do that in his time. Finally, write this down as number three. Wisdom is better than folly, but it can't suppress a fool. And this builds right on the, sec- the previous point. And here's what Solomon says in verse 1 of chapter 10. It's pretty creative. It's pretty fun what he says. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. (laughs) So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. What? What is he talking about there? Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. This is, here's what he's saying. This is the Hebrew equivalent to one bad apple spoils the bunch. Right? Did your mom ever tell you that? This is Solomon's presentation of a cruel irony. A perfumer's ointment. You know, a perfumer, that was like an art in the ancient world. To be able to mix oils and, and, and different types of things in order to produce a good scent, a good smelling fragrance, or something that had a healing property to it. But now, because of these dead flies that got mixed up in the ointment, that which was meant to be attractive becomes repulsive. That which was meant to smell good smells putrid. What Solomon is saying about wisdom here is that even when a great deal of wisdom is present, things can get fouled up by a little folly. By just a little bit of folly, it can screw up a whole lot of wisdom. Jesus said something similar when he talked about leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? One bad apple. And there's an irony to that. There's a cruel irony to that. In the words of the great philosopher, Alanis Morissette, it's like rain on your wedding day. It's a free ride when you've already paid. It's the good advice that you just can't take. And who would have thought it figures? You guys have any idea what I'm talking about? If you were raised in the late 1900s, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) If you weren't, then you don't. 
Tommy Nelson tells this story about this cook from Louisiana that was cooking up this big pot of gumbo. Don't you love gumbo? Big heaping pot. And in his left hand, this cook had a bottle of Miller Lite that he was seasoning the, the gumbo with. And in his right hand, he had a can that he was using as his spit cup for his tobacco. So cooking up the gumbo, right? Pour a little Miller Lite, spit in your right hand, pour with your left hand, spit in the right hand. Y'all know where I'm going with this? Pretty soon he lost his way. Maybe it was the heat from the gumbo. Maybe it was the Miller Lite. I don't know. But he poured with the wrong hand. Y'all going to eat that gumbo? Spoiled the whole thing. So when Solomon says, a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor, I want you to think gumbo, okay? <laughs> and here's how it's practically applicable in your life. You can live a wise life. You can live an honorable life, but you do one stupid thing and you can ruin it. Can't you now? One hapless tryst with a coworker. One too many drinks at the Christmas party. One foolish and angry word spoken to the wrong person. And you can wreak havoc upon your life. Alistair Begg said it this way. You can read this on the screen. He says, it doesn't take much folly to outweigh wisdom and honor. You could have built a reputation in your life for many years over a period of 20 or 30 years. You could be known for being a wise and honorable citizen. And then in a moment of foolishness, you can mar that reputation. A tiny amount of folly may destroy a family, ruin a reputation, or bring heartache to a marriage. It takes far less to ruin something than it does to build something, doesn't it? It's easier to cause a stink than it is to create sweetness. In a foolish impulse, in a sudden lapse of judgment, something beautiful may be irreparably spoiled. Sonia and I, you know, Alistair's at an age now where we can watch, let's just say, better TV shows than we used to. <laughs> so I'm really glad to put behind me the days of like Veggie Tales and Dora the Explorer, okay? If you're in that stage right now with your kids, just, just power through, parents, all right? You'll get there eventually. So we're watching these shows now that have, you know, a little more adult themes to them. And it's amazing to me as we watch these shows, how many of the plots hinge on one dumb thing the character does. And usually it involves alcohol. One too many drinks at the office Christmas party. And then before you know it, their life is a mess. And those are teaching moments, parents. You're like, you see that, son? All that good stuff gets robbed because of one stupid, indiscreet action. And, you know, it's teachable moments for them. You might say, yeah, kids, don't do anything stupid. 
35-year-old people do stupid stuff that ruin their lives, not just teenagers. I've seen 55-year-old men and women do stupid stuff to wreck their lives. And you think they would know better. Remember the gumbo harvesticator. Everybody with me? You know, in Texas, they like to say, remember the Alamo? (laughs) Remember the Alamo, but remember the gumbo. One dumb thing. Look at verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Do you feel the antithetical parallelism there, Harvest Cater? Are you feeling it now? A wise man's heart goes one way, a fool goes the opposite way. And if you start following the way of a fool, don't be surprised when you get what a fool gets. That shouldn't be a surprise to you. If you remember when you were young, you used to tell your mama, well, all my friends are doing it. And what did your mama say? Well, if your friends jumped off a cliff, would you do it too? Mama was right. The path of a fool and the path of a wise man are irreconcilably antithetical. And notice the use of heart here in verse 2. Look at this. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right. Everybody see that? The heart. This is the Hebrew word lave and It's different in Hebrew thought than in English thought. The heart wasn't just the center of your emotions. It was the center of your will. It was your decision-making instrument. So a wise man will decide with his heart to go the right way, and a foolish person will decide to go left. And, you know, let me explain that whole right-left dichotomy. I'm kind of offended by that because I'm a left-handed person, you know? Like, I like going left. That's my best basketball move. I fake right and I go left. What's wrong with that? Well, this is metaphor in Bible speak. It's metaphor for the right way and the wrong way. In fact, that actually comes into our English language. The Latin word for left is sinister. There's a sinister nature to going, metaphorically speaking, going left. Here's another way to say it. This is from the Jerusalem Bible. The wise man hearts lead the the wise man's heart leads him aright. The fool's heart leads him astray. Which way are you going to go? The way of the wise man, the way of the fool. Look at verse 3. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. It's obvious to the world. There's There's an ancient Malayan proverb that goes like this. A fool is like a big drum that beats fast but does not realize its hollowness. Doom, 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 doom. Here comes the fool. Beating fast, but doesn't know how empty he is on the inside, his hollowness. That sounds like the book of Proverbs, doesn't it? Proverbs 18, 18, verse 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Doom, 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 doom. Here comes the fool. Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Proverbs twelve fifteen: the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Doom, doom. But a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 14, 16, one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. 
Proverbs 15.2. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. Proverbs 18.6. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. One more. This is my favorite. Proverbs 26, verse 11. Like a dog that returns to his vomit. Right? I love dogs, but yeah. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. There's about 30 other verses in the book of Proverbs that denounce folly and the fool. It's actually a statement in the Psalms about the fool, the atheist. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And when I read the book of Proverbs and Psalms as a kid, I don't know which, which I prayed more for. Lord, make me wise or Lord, please, may I not be a fool like what this book speaks about a fool. I pray both of those. And then look at verse four. This last verse is kind of enigmatic, so let me explain it. Here's what Solomon says. Let's finish this up. He says, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Every once in a while in Ecclesiastes, and I've started to see this as we've worked through this book, Solomon just gives you some practical advice about how to interact with superiors. This is what you do with a ruler. This is what you do with a king. This is what you do with your boss. And verse four is a good example of this. What do you do with a ruler when he gets angry? And based upon the context of this statement here, I get the impression that Paul, uh, Paul, that Solomon is describing a hot tempered fool who's a ruler. That's what we're dealing with here. So what do you do when you encounter the foolishness of a bad ruler, a bad boss, somebody who is angry and dumb? Here's what you do. First of all, you stand your ground. Everybody see that in verse four? Do not leave your place. You stand your ground. If you back down or run away, he'll perceive you as weak. No, you stand your ground but you do it with calmness and respect for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So you, you stand your ground when you're dealing with a bad boss, a bad parent, a bad political leader, you stand your ground, but then you interact with them with calmness and respect to lay great offenses to rest. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, right? Don't answer full according to his folly. Don't incite the wrath of a superior. Just play it cool. Just bide your time because you can't overpower a fool. You can't, who is more powerful than you. But here's what you can do. You can outlast them. You can outmaneuver them. And I say you can outlast them because rulers don't stay rulers forever. 
So just to summarize here, wisdom is better than might, but it can't sustain memory. Wisdom is better than warfare, but it can't subdue wickedness. And then finally, wisdom is better than folly, but it can't suppress a fool. Listen, Harvesticator, I want y'all to go for wisdom. Go for wisdom. I want you to live lives that are wise and honorable before the world. I think that's a good thing when Christians live lives like that. I think that's a great testimony. But don't be surprised in this Genesis 3 world when your wisdom isn't respected, when it isn't heeded, and when it's quickly forgotten by those who don't value wisdom. That's the moral of this passage. That's the essence of this passage. And I'll close with this. Let me go back to that anecdote because there's something in there that I want you to see. That anecdote from chapter 9, verses 14 through 16. Let's revisit that. Here's what Solomon said in those passages. There was a little city with few men in it. And a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in the city a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet, no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. A few years ago, the Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson, he wrote a book on Ecclesiastes, and he called it Pundit's Folly. And he reused this word pundit to refer to the author of Ecclesiastes. And he's got a section in that book about that passage, Ecclesiastes 9, 14 through 16. And here's what he says about that passage. He says that this passage reads almost like a prophecy. Because, Ferguson writes, Whose name most naturally comes to mind when you hear of a poor man full of wisdom who became a savior, but whose life and teaching have been rejected? Who does that make you think of? Let me ask it this way, Harvest Cater, let me ask you. Whose name most naturally comes to your mind when you hear of a poor man full of wisdom that saved people and then was rejected even though he was wise. There was a wise man that came to this world who was wiser than Solomon. He taught even better than Solomon. And he laid down his life for the very people who had caused his death. And he was a poor man, born to peasant teenagers in the backwaters of Israel, born in Bethlehem, raised in obscurity in Nazareth. And that poor wise man died a death so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we might live forever. I've said this before, but let me say it again. Wisdom is better than might. Wisdom is better than warfare. Wisdom is better than folly. But you know who's better than wisdom? 
Jesus is better than wisdom. Put your faith in him. Trust him. You know what? Even if you're the wisest person on earth, I doubt that the wisest person on earth is here in the congregation right now. Even if you are, even if you take all of the words of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and you live them out perfectly. Let me break the news to you. You are a sinner still in need of saving. Your wisdom isn't going to save you. You know who's going to save you? Jesus is. And your faith in him saves you. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we confess this morning as your church, as the body of Christ, Lord, that we cannot save ourselves with wisdom, with good works, with obedience to the Bible. Lord, your words are good and they're true and perfect and beautiful, but we are not. We are sin-stained creatures who need redemption. We need saving. Lord, I thank you that by your grace you sent Jesus Christ the perfect embodiment of wisdom into this world to die for our sins. And Lord, by our faith in him we can be saved and we can even live lives wiser than we ever lived without him. God, we want that. I want that for Harvest Decatur. So God, give us your wisdom. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who resides within us, teaching us, training us in your ways, teaching us to stay away from folly and stupidity and wickedness that could wreck our lives. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit in the lives of the saints gathered right now the Holy Spirit's convictions would be so strong as to prevent that a foolish act that would destroy them or their family or this church. God protect us from that. God give us humble hearts, teachable hearts, malleable hearts, willing to change, ready to change, living for you, Lord. I pray that for myself too, Lord. I pray that for the elders of Harvest Decatur. May we never defame the name of Jesus or your church by our actions. Yes, Lord, we're sinners, we make mistakes, but God, prevent us from doing something that would bring shame upon you, Lord. I pray. And Lord, in all things, we praise you for your grace. We praise you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior. 
You are better than anything that this world has to offer, and we praise you. 